Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. On the show today, I'm very happy to have Kike Fisher. She is the Chief Risk Officer and Divisional Director at Leadway Assurance Company Limited, which is the largest insurer in Nigeria. She's an experienced risk management professional with 11 years of risk management experience in banking, capital markets, and insurance sectors of the financial services industry. And she holds a bachelor's degree in business economics and finance from the University of Surrey in Guildford, United Kingdom. She has a strong knowledge of both the African and European markets with particular expertise in capital management, investment risk, regulatory compliance, asset and liability management, and financial valuations. So prior to joining Leadway, she was working at Ernst & Young, where she led the financial services risk management functions for West Africa, and she developed and grew the team which serves a number of banks and financial institutions across West Africa. Uh, she also worked at the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, uh, where she was the lead supervisor for a number of trading platforms, including the London Stock Exchange. So happy to have Kika join us today all the way from Lagos. Thank you. I'm glad to be on the show. Excellent. Um, so we're going to get uh, started right away. And just uh, tell us a little bit more about your yourself, a bit more about uh, your upbringing uh, and how you ended up uh, you know, recognizing your leadership style um, and, and ultimately getting into the career that you're in. Okay. Okay, so I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, I was in Nigeria up until I was 15. Moved to London for my A-levels. And so I did my A-levels in the UK and my university in the UK. I grew up in a household of boys, so I'm used to being around men. Um, quite strangely, I actually don't have any female cousins. Oh. Um, most of my cousins are male, so I've got 13 male cousins in total. Um one female cousin and the rest of my female cousins that I refer to as cousins are cousins of cousins. So I'm used to being with men generally. Um, so um, my leadership abilities, well, to be honest, um, I'd say even till today, I still struggle with saying how I was able to recognize my leadership abilities um, I would say I've always been someone who likes to influence decisions. So I tend to work quietly in the background. Um, and I'm someone who's always been singled out. So someone always discovers that she cares in the background doing things quietly and then she gets singled out and is asked to, oh, can you lead this? Can you lead this group? Can you be the head of this? Um, so I would say my case has always been a case of someone has also been quietly watching me to see what Kike has been doing as opposed to me being able to recognize my leadership abilities. Wow. But if I'm forced to give an answer to say, when did I really recognize my leadership abilities? I, I would say it would be my second role um, after I left university, which is my role at the Financial Services Authority, where I was basically thrown into the deep end um, to lead a team of about five people. Um, and that was when I was it was very clear to me that I did have very strong leadership ability. Nice. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, so, so let, let's talk a bit about your, your transition um, to the UK. So, so you left Nigeria at 15, went to the UK um, for A-levels and then ultimately into university. What was that, what was that shift like for you? Um, I think, it was an easy transition because um, a lot of my friends who I went to secondary school with um, also moved around that time. So I had 
friends around me. Um, I had cousins of cousins around me as well. Um, so it was more or less a smooth transition for me. I don't think I struggled that much, especially because I went to boarding school in Nigeria. So I was used to being away from family. So it wasn't necessarily a shock to my system. I think what was completely different was the fact that you had a voice as opposed to, you know what it's like going to school in Nigeria where um, you're not allowed to really be very opinionated. Um, And I think that was the only difference for me where you were allowed to speak. Um, You were allowed to have an opinion and it wasn't necessarily one plus one is equal to two. It was you applying yourself. Um, and I think that was the main difference for me. And it didn't take me that long to have that switch because I had people around me to guide me. Um, and I consider myself to be a fast learner. Um, I adapt quite quickly as well. So new environments don't tend to shake me up. I tend to just sort of morph into what's the new thing and what needs to be done to be able to get through it. So I don't think it was a big transition for me. Okay. Surprisingly... Um, and I'm sure you probably would get to it and during the course of our conversation is me moving back to Nigeria. That was a shock for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and we will touch on that uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but before we get yeah. there, um, let's, you know, your university experience, uh, you, you chose to study uh, uh, economics. Um, what was the, the driving force behind that? Was that something that was always a passion of yours or you just decided that, okay, this is something I'd like to do and it will hopefully lead to something better. What was, what was the decision-making process around that? Okay. So um, for me, it was numbers. Um, Numbers resonated more. Um, It was easier for me to understand things that required numerical reasoning or some sort of calculation. Um, So I chose economics because it was the only thing that I could easily relate to without my parents or anybody back in Nigeria saying, what exactly are you doing? Um, So to be honest, beyond picking economics, what I actually wanted to do was interior design. Okay. And I remember my dad saying to me, well, you could always do interior design after economics. I'm not going to stop you from doing it. Um, I'll pay for you to do interior design. But the question is, are you really going to get a job that's going to pay your bills if you do get it, if you do do an interior design course? Why don't you do what pays the bills and then do interior design afterwards? So I thought to myself, well, okay, I'm good with numbers. I understand economics. Economics is a simple, tra- it was, and then economics was also a simple transition for me moving to the UK because it was one of the few um, topics that was very similar um, there wasn't a, so critical reasoning. I'll give an example. Critical reasoning was completely different. You do English and comprehension in Nigeria, but then you move to the UK and then you do critical reasoning and it's more in-depth English, which requires you to think in a certain way. And I thought, well, let me just do something I'm used to. So I picked economics. One, because I was good with numbers. Two, it was an easy transition. Three, I knew I was going to end up in the financial services sector. Um, and so it was the easiest thing to choose. Brilliant. So um, you get out of university. Um, did you sort of do the interior design as well on the side or how, where did that uh, passion uh, end up getting to? Okay. So while I was in uni, I didn't do anything interior design related, but I did a fashion course on jewelry making. So all throughout. So in my, so my university course was four years. Um, in my second through to my fourth year, I did a bit of goldsmithing. So I was making jewelry and selling jewelry for a while. Um, and then I moved back to Nigeria. Um, I didn't have the time to travel as often as I was traveling in the UK because it was easy to travel in the UK. So I had some time to go to some Asian countries So I'd go to India once in a while to get my precious stones and make my jewelry. That was how I transitioned my love for art into jewelry making. Um, So I did that for a bit. I haven't done it in the last five years. Every now and again, 
Um, I'm going out for a party. I need to make something for myself. I still would go around and make something for myself or make something for friends, but I don't do it commercially like I did while I was in uni and for the first two years after I graduated. So now, no, I don't do anything related to that. Don't have the time. (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, So, so yeah, so talk us through your, your, your journey in, in finance, in financial services, um, you know, and, and you, you ultimately ended up, um, uh, at a certain point, working with with Ernst and Young uh, in, in in a risk capacity. Um, so, okay. what what was the journey from you know finishing school and getting your first job in in the UK, um, and ultimately up to to getting to EY? Okay, okay. So my journey is quite interesting. Um, I always worked. So, from my first year of uni, I always did what we call either summer internships or autumn internships. Um, So I had the flexibility and I would say the luxury of me being able to determine where I wanted to go. So my first internship was with Deloitte, um, which was after my first year of uni. um, And it was my first exposure to consulting. Um, And it was more management consulting for financial services. Um, So like I said, I knew I wanted to go into financial services. I was drawn to numbers, drawn to anything investment related. But um, I wasn't particularly sure what exactly I wanted to do in terms of roles. But I knew I wanted to end up in the city. And I wanted to end up, I wanted to end up in the city basically because it was glamorous um, I liked the prestige that came with working in Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf in London is like working in Wall Street in New York. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I liked the way the ladies looked. They looked chic. For me, it was beauty and brains. Yeah. I mean, you had to be smart. You had to be pretty. They were well-dressed. And everybody just looked serious. But at the same time, there was that finesse that came with, with the way they looked. Um, and I said, no, I have to get in. You know, I have to get into the city. I don't care what it takes. I have to work in Canary Wharf or the city. I have to work in one of these investment banks. I have to work in one of these financial institutions. I don't care how I get it. Um, And the fact that I was Black, I was female, um, was also a challenge for me. And I think I was quite drawn to the fact that, you know, when people tell you you can't get in or there's no chance of you getting in, it's, it now becomes more of a driver for you to try and get in. So um, I did business economics, which was a four-year course. Um, the third year is meant to be a placement year where you do, um, what's it called? You do a year in industry where you get to work wherever you want to work based on what it is you want to do. Um, and I did get an offer to work in an investment bank. Um, at the time, I think they still do exist. It was called State Street Bank. Um, And I got an opportunity to work on the trading desk um, for one year. At the same time, I got two other offers. Um, One was with the um, energy and gas regulator called Ofgem, which was in the UK as well. And the other was with GM, General Motors, as well. Um, And that was a financial analyst role. Um, And as much as I wanted to work in the city, surprisingly, I took the role with the regulator um, and that was because the culture best suited my values at the time. Um, and so I went with that option, but I still had this feeling of, I still really want to work in the city. I still want to understand what it's like um, doing a financial services role, um, either being an investment banker, working on a trading desk, whatever it is, I still had that longing for it. So when I graduated, um, I got the offer to work at the Financial Services Authority. Um, So I did get into the city and I started my career there. Um, First role was as an an analyst working on the debt desk. Um, And basically my role was basically listing of securities. So for every company who wanted to list their company um, through the London Stock Exchange, I was responsible for you know, going through the IPOs and everything that had to come with it. Um, And so I started off there. Um, And this was a very interesting journey. Um, So I started and three months into my role, I remember working into the lift 
And I was on the phone with my boyfriend, now my husband at the time. And I said to him, you know what? I'm actually quite bored of this role. I can't imagine, you know, going through papers and determining whether this company needs to be listed. It's quite boring. I want to be market facing. Like, I really want to know what's going on out there. And I think I need to move departments. Hmm. I was just having a random conversation. And I had this lady who was standing right next to me in the lift and she was staring at me. And I was wondering why, 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 why is she staring at me? Um, and so the lift stopped. I was about to get out and she said, um, I'm not sure what floor you walk on, but I think we're on the same floor. Can you, can you find me later? And we, we need to have some coffee. And I was wondering what does she want to talk to me about? And she gave me her card. Mm. Um, I think her name was Sarah. So I did meet up with her eventually. Um, and she said, look, I'm leaving. And I had the markets division and I overheard you. I know I shouldn't be eavesdropping, but I overheard you say you wanted to be client facing. Um, so could you um, just tell me a little bit about yourself, what you've done in the past and why you want to be client facing? So I, literally I had to sell myself within two minutes. Wow. And she said, well, I think I've got a fantastic role for you, but I'm leaving. Um, and we need to do the interview quite quickly because I've interviewed quite a few people and I don't think we've found the right candidate but I was going to Portugal the next day. So I said to her, I'm going to Portugal the next day and I'm not going to be back for three weeks. And she said, well, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be here when you get back. So I think we're just going to schedule the interview for you now and we're just going to move. Wow. So I said, okay, fine. So she scheduled the interview um, and I met with a bunch of people in the markets division, um, had my interview and she said, you know what, I'll get in touch with you. Um, I know you can't because because my department was, um, what's it called? We had what we call Chinese walls. So yeah. you couldn't access your emails if you were not in the building. So she said, can I have your personal email address? I will give you the details of the outcome of the interview if you're successful. Um, and I'll let you know what next because I'm not going to be here when you get back. Um, so I went away on holiday. She sends me an email about five days later to say, You've been successful, but we're going to put you forward to be the lead supervisor for a particular entity. Um, but I need to have a conversation with you about this entity. Um, so she gives me a call and she says, we're going to, I need to put you in as the lead supervisor for the London Stock Exchange. But if I put you in, no one's going to recognize your abilities. Um, you've got a lot of potential, but I need the team to be able to recognize the potential. So I'm going to give you an institution that's failing. In my mind, I'm thinking, why would you want to give me an institution that's failing? It's a financial institution. This is London. And you're giving a black woman an institution that's about to fail. And she's like, I know what I'm doing. Just trust my instinct. And she walked me through the entire process of what I needed to do, how I needed to go through the process. And that was how my risk management career started. Wow. Um, so three months into the role, there was I left with an entity that was failing um, and I needed to come up with a strategy on how to recuperate the organization, what to do to make sure there was a clean transition. And luckily, I was able to do that really well. So she did. She saw the long term goal, which I didn't see. I thought she was setting me up for failure. But it was then I did recognize what my leadership abilities were because it was a new role, new function, new people. Um, a client-facing role, which I'd never done before. And someone randomly overhead my conversation in a lift and thought I'll be best suited for the role. So That's amazing. That's amazing. Like like this, a serendipitous encounter uh, yeah. literally just changed the trajectory of your entire career. That, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, so you, you, I'm guessing, of course, you succeeded in this in this role. You succeeded in the challenges and everyone else that came after that. Um, yeah. You know how how did you manage um, to handle any issues that came up as a result of you being a black person, and then you know combined with being a black woman uh, in this space? Okay, um, so in that same role. Um, I was probably one of the first lead supervisors who was black. Um, and I remember really struggling to convince people that I could actually do the role 
and take up the responsibility. Um, and I think one of my biggest issues was the fact that, um, you know, most times when you're speaking to people on the phone, they don't know who they're speaking to until they meet you face to face. And one of the biggest issues I had was the fact that one, you walk into a room and one, people are expecting to see a man. Two, they're expecting to see a white person. And three, they were expecting to meet a much bigger person. I'm quite petite. And with all three, all wrong. So the shock on their face for me (laughs) was both hilarious and off-putting because they tried to hide their facial expression, but it just came out because people would get confused and you get, sorry, what did you say your name was? Who's the manager? Um, are you the one leading the meeting? Um, and it, it threw me off, especially for someone who was just starting out in a role that you'd never done before. But then there was someone who was trusting that you could do it. Now, the person who trusted you to do it left. Um, and I had a new boss who was completely new in the system as well. So we we're both finding our feet. And she used to say to me then, she, she used to go kick it. She was a German woman and fantastic. I think she's probably one of the best bosses I ever had. And she used to say to me then, she said, Kika, people should never, ever be able to read your facial expression. I could read. I remember one of the first meetings I had with her. Um, she said, I could read your facial expression the minute you walked into the room and they asked who's the lead supervisor and you, you introduced yourself and the man looked upset that it was you because it was expecting it to be someone else. Um, and your facial expression changed. She said, you should never, ever do that. You shake confidently and you smile. And if they insist they don't want to speak to you because you're black, that's fine. Let your team speak. They want to speak to a white person, fine. The rest of your team's white, let them speak to them. But they speak to them, but keep a smile, look confident, and speak and interject only when you need to. But at that time, I was like, why, why, why would you want me to speak only when I need to? I'm the manager. I lead the team. I need to speak in the meeting. But that was all she ever said. And what I learned with that was, oh, and there was one more thing she always used to say to me. She said, you will learn to find your voice. Um, and what I learned from that eventually was that I was forced to learn to lead without screaming. Um, and I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, that, I didn't that have to powerful. enter the room telling everyone I was the leader or I was the manager or I was the lead supervisor. Um, when it was time for me to speak up or to make decisions, people would naturally defer to me in the room. And automatically, people knew who was leading. So I didn't have to come in stamping my feet or exerting energy and pressure to say, you must speak to me, I'm the leader. So naturally, the leadership skills were naturally embedded with me through this woman who said, you would find your voice and only speak when you think it's necessary for you to speak. It's fine if they don't want to speak to you. And that's fine. Um, you can't force them to speak to you. So I eventually found a way for my voice to be heard. Um, I eventually learned when to speak, when to interject. Um, and I knew when to shut down the meeting if things were getting a little bit aggressive because there were times where you had people say, oh, well, I'm not going to hold this meeting until X, Y, Z is here. Mm. Now, you think that would only happen because you're abroad, but then I moved back to Nigeria And luckily, I had built that sort of resistance to people looking at you differently when you're female, when you're black. Um, But then moving back, people were more outspoken. So it's not just their facial expression. It's the things they'd say to you. Um, And people would easily shut you up. I mean, in the UK, it's slightly different. They would do it stylishly. In Nigeria, they literally would shut you up and tell you or decide that they're not holding the meeting at all. I've had situations where I've been to meetings and someone said to me, um, does EY deliberately hire 
underaged people and I was confused. Oh wow. I was like, what? Sorry? Um I mean in my mind I was like, shut up asking how old are you? You could have just simply asked how old are you and are you really the senior manager or the director in this engagement? But he literally said, Do they hire underaged people as managers? And I was like, okay. Do you want to have this meeting or not? And he went, oh, okay, so you're the one leading the meeting, not someone else. I said, yes, I am. But if you'd like someone else to, then it means you're not going to be having this meeting for another three weeks. But I guess the meeting is really important to you, so we must go ahead. So I found more tactical ways of dealing with people. Um, So for me, it's almost like a double whammy. I'm small, I'm female, I walk into the room most of the time. You think the team members are the ones leading. So I'm more or less used to it. So I found smart ways of having to deal with most of these situations. Yeah. And I, and I love what you mentioned about learning to lead without screaming and, and being able to find your voice in these, in these situations. Um, and, and I think that that's very powerful for, particularly for a lot of, uh, of, of black female leaders in, in certain spaces. Um, a question I'd ask, do, do you feel that, you know, you mentioned that you grew up around a lot of, of a lot of men in your family. Do you, yeah. do you feel that um, having a grown up in that type of environment gave you a certain um, insight into how to deal with um, men in the workplace that sometimes would look at you differently or expect uh, less from you because you were a black woman? Oh yes, Definitely. Um, so because I grew up with, with men, um, I let the unspoken words of men very quickly. Um, and I do get along with men a lot much better than I do get along with women. Um, I find them easier to work with, um, which people find quite strange. Um, but, um, one thing I found was Men who are quite condescending, I put it down to them not knowing better Mm. or I put it down to their upbringing or some sort of insecurity that they might be facing. So I tend to play the game of not responding or not ignoring them. So I don't give them the power to say more than they should. So you say it once, Kike doesn't react you automatically learn to keep quiet. Um, It doesn't always work because you have people who want to really wind you and get you to respond or react or get really angry. But for me, it's either don't say anything, you walk away, or you calmly tell them off. I've had people people randomly say to me, well, if if you were mine, and when I hear that, I'm like, sorry, what do you mean by if you were, I'm not yours. So what do you mean by if you were mine, you wouldn't be working. You should be at home. And I'm like, at home doing what? Wow. Why should you have a different opportunity than I should because I'm female? What says that I should be at home looking after the kids and not in the workspace? So, you know, it's it's balancing out um, the sort of responses you give to them and, and learning what to say depending on the type of personality that you're dealing with. So I learned to, I learned also, it's more of emotional intelligence um, and also being able to read people quite quickly um, and understanding the personality you're dealing with. So I respond based on the personality. There's some personalities that you just don't bother with. Right, right. Amazing. So, so let, let, let's talk a pivot quickly then. Um, you know, you, what made you decide to ultimately move back to Nigeria and, and, and start uh, your career in Nigeria with, with, with EY? Okay. So moving back was never in the picture. Um, it was more of a, let's see how it goes. If I get bored with the UK, I might just move somewhere else and try something completely different. But then I started dating my husband um, and he was living in Nigeria. Um, So I sort of knew that there was no way and there was no way I wasn't going to end up in Nigeria because he had just moved back to Nigeria. Um, So it was a long distance relationship. 
we were seeing each other on average every six weeks um, at the least. So I was going back and forth. Um, the minute I knew it was serious, um, I made an effort to go back home regularly um, just so that I could ease the transition to moving back if I had to. Um, and then we got married and I thought, okay, I'll stay in the UK for another two years before moving back to Nigeria. But then I got headhunted um, by EY Nigeria. Um, I got a call randomly one day saying, look, I'm trying to build a risk function in Nigeria. You've got the expertise and we want you, would like to have you come back and, you know, take up this responsibility. Um, so I had a couple of interviews, a couple of um, organizations I had interviews with, with in Nigeria. Um, and at the time I hadn't resigned from my job in the UK. Um, so I had just had my first child. Um, so I was still deciding what I really wanted to do. Um, so after thinking through the process, I decided, okay, let's give it, let, let me give it my best shot. One, it's consulting. So it's going to give me a proper insight into how other organizations are structured, what the Nigerian environment is going to be like. And it's the quickest way um, to understand how the Nigerian environment would work as opposed to going straight into industry. So I took the leap. Um, it was a leap of faith. Um, I went in. It was a fantastic opportunity. I stayed there five and a half years. I grew the team from zero to what it is now today. I left earlier this year in January. Um, so from serving zero clients, we're now serving clients across all the financial institutions across Nigeria and West Africa. So it was a fantastic opportunity. Um what would I say was my biggest shock moving? The culture. Hmm. I think that was the, the, the culture is very different from the UK. So it was something I had to adapt to. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and that's interesting considering that you are Nigerian. That was where you, you were born, you were raised, you left for you know, a good 10 plus years and then you come back and you're shocked at literally what is effectively your own culture. How did you manage that transition? particularly in the workplace and, and dealing with clients um, and, and then also socially as well. Okay. So I had moved back at some point to do what Nigerians call NYC, your youth service, but I didn't have that much exposure to people. It was just into work and out. And then, but then with this, with moving into consulting, you had to deal with clients. So you're exposed to all sorts of people with, completely different backgrounds um, from perhaps what I was used to growing up. So even though I did grow up in Nigeria, I must say I did have a very shielded life. Um, so then you're now out in the open. It's not like you're in school where you have a bunch of people who have similar backgrounds with you, um, depending on what type of school you went to. Now you're in the workspace. You have everybody from different works of life all coming together. Um, in an organization. And yes, EY, people would argue is a multinational, but then you do have Nigerians working in it. So invariably, it's, it, it is a Nigerian company with everybody in it. Um, and it's different. It's different because employment laws are different. Um, there's a different sense of ownership. I don't know how to explain it, but you have to yeah. work in Nigeria. You have to walk abroad and then move back to understand the difference in the sense of ownership when work is being given to you. There's a different attitude to it. Um, and it's difficult to put it in words. Yeah. You have to experience it yourself to be able to understand um, what the difference is. Now, there's also a difference in terms of accountability. Um, in my own experience, people might say I'm wrong. I think there's more of an attitude towards, I just want to come to work and get paid and go home. You don't really see people who are passionate about what they do right. or passionate about achieving the company's goals or aligning their company's goals with their personal goals. You don't see that. People are like, I just want to do the work and get paid 
whether I do it well or not, I just want to get paid. I just want to survive. And that's the attitude I saw in the workspace. So getting to motivate people was a bit hard. In the UK, it wasn't that hard because people just understood that, you know, I have some sort of responsibility and accountability for it. So I will get it done no matter what it takes. But here you had to cajole and motivate and get to understand what motivates every single person mm. and try and get close to every single person. So it was more like mixing personal issues with work-related issues. So for me, it was, that was, it was more time-consuming than actually getting the actual work done. Right. So that was the big transition for me. And with with all of that facing you as a challenge, did you did you end up getting like how did you navigate that through uh, mentorship or sponsorship? Did you have people that uh, you looked to that helped you sort of figure out navigating the nuances of this new operating environment that you found yourself in? Okay, so I, I think it sort of helped that I came straight into a management role, and my boss was fantastic he was really understanding um because he had also done that transition three years before i did um so in my first year of moving back he told me that i was going to struggle so he said as many times as you need to go back to london please as much as possible speak up and go as long as what gets done i'm fine so i was able to manage that and i did go back quite a lot um as long as my team was getting on with the work and I was able to speak to my clients, that was fine. Now, speaking about mentorship, I really, really, really struggle with the term mentorship. And I struggle with it maybe because of my personality. I do have people who helped me shape and influence my decision process. But in the way people describe mentorship, I don't think I really use them in that way. Like I didn't have planned meetings or consistent meetings with them. Um, like I said, it's down to my personality. One, I really don't like to bother people. So I have to be absolutely sure that I'm not going to place that call or send a text message and you're not going to be irritated or feel like I'm bothering you. Right. The second one is I'm an extremely shy person. No one believes me when I say this. But I think work sort of helped me come out of my shell, but I'm shy. I find it really hard to keep in touch with people. So I might strike a really good conversation with you today. We get along really well. I know that I'm going to call you and you're not going to be bothered by my phone call. You're going to be happy to have a conversation with me. You're going to be happy to grab a cup of coffee with me. But I would really struggle to keep in touch. You have to, you have to, the other party has to be the one making the effort, not me. Um, and so if you don't make the effort one, two, three times and sort of tell me, yeah, Kike, it's fine for you to give me a call, give me a shout out, I wouldn't. So the way it sort of worked for me is I meet you, um, maybe through the course of work, through networking, you're a client. Um, we have a good conversation. I think we align professionally or on a personal level. I have an issue or an idea pops up. I give you a phone call. I ask if you're available to hear me out. You say yes. We meet up once or twice. We have a conversation. My matter gets resolved or I reach a landing. I might never speak to you again for three months, six months, maybe a year, maybe never. That's just sort of how I operate. Right. Um, and the reason why I do that is because most times I think I sort of know what sort of choice I want to make and me speaking to you sort of validating or getting some sort of reassurance that I'm heading in the right direction. So I try as much as possible to limit the amount of people that I'm speaking to. Um, so what I would say has worked for me more is sponsors. I think I've been quite lucky with every organization I've worked in. I've had at least, a, I've had a sponsor. So you know how people ask the question of how do you know it's the right move? I know it's the right move if I have a sponsor. That's so good. if I don't have a sponsor where I'm moving to, I'm not moving. So it's my number one deciding criteria. 
it's not it's not about the pay it's not about the benefits it's about having a sponsor and and how have you found the effectiveness of that cuz cuz that that's a thing that um like sponsorship is a really really major thing in in getting a lot of really good opportunities in your career or or anywhere else in your life um and many folks particularly a lot of black folks um uh who are working out in the diaspora or or anywhere else or even any even even locally um sometimes don't have access to the right sponsors um what advice would you give to people who are in need of a sponsor um and how do they go about looking for one or make or positioning themselves rather to be uh to be sponsored for an opportunity okay um i think you used the right word it's about positioning um i would say i've been quite lucky um and i think i said at the start of our conversation that somehow i'm usually singled out um without realizing that i'm being singled out um my tactic has always been to find where the source of control is and align myself to it so I have not always entered the organization knowing or realizing that I have a sponsor but maybe 2 or 3 months down the line or maybe after my first year I then realize ah oh, okay this is my sponsor but I don't directly go saying I need to get in and I need to find a sponsor right I just sort of let things flow the way they should but one thing I typically tend to do is scan my environment properly which is understanding who are the key decision makers what basically motivates them um how do i help them achieve their goals first before i achieve my own goals so it's almost been like being selfless first before you start to head for what is important for me and then sort of aligning their goals with mine or vice versa and i found that it sort of worked for me how it happens i don't know but it sort of works um i like to influence decisions so i don't necessarily need to be the one leading the team but i like to always know that i'm sort of the one driving the decisions whether it's at the forefront or behind um or behind the scenes however it's been done um it's sort of how i tend to get noticed and that's how i sort of get picked by a sponsor Now um from a consulting perspective because I worked as a consultant as well networking did help um so you will find those clients especially the leaders of those organizations that you do get along with quite well and once I realized that I strike a chord with them I sort of sustain my relationship with them um and that's how i've been able to get through my career awesome a lot of people do make the mistake of not following up so like i did say i'm quite shy but i do know when to follow up um you would find the people who would recognize so for me i sometimes find people who recognize the fact that oh kike is shy and do make the effort to say oh no it's okay you need any help you need to find out any information um feel free to come to me and sometimes i don't go straight asking for help i sort of offer a hand to say oh i found something that might be useful for you i find something that might be useful to help you do xyz would you like some more information about so it's me offering a hand to them first right. before they start to offer a hand to me and and i think that's a, a key thing cuz a lot of times uh, most uh, most professionals most of us we think that it's the job of the sponsor to to reach out and guide us all the way through but it, it can, you can also do the reverse right um mm-hmm. you know and and back to what where we started on this in, in terms of positioning yourself for sponsorship it's really about making yourself uh showing your value your usefulness to whoever is sponsoring you and then they can see what your potential is and look at the opportunities in at, from their viewpoint to see which ones match you. So so that that that's really good. I I really like that that idea and 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 your insight on that. I guess a, a um a final question I'll ask you is, you know, if you could go back and change anything um or give yourself advice uh when you were younger, 
what what would that advice be or what would you change? I think I think I'd be more aggressive. Um, I sort of had a free rider approach um, in the sense that I sort of let things flow without being clued on to what I'm doing. And I think it's worked. I don't think there's anything bad with that approach. So I never go in saying um, I'm going to be a director or I'm going to be a CEO in two years' time and that's my goal. I sort of go in and just saying, we'll just see how it goes. I'll just give it my best shot. Um, and I think at every given point in time in my career, I think the same boss who told me, find your voice, said to me that I had a tendency to keep quiet when I didn't need to keep quiet. Um, and I sort of relied heavily on the people who saw value in me to fight for me um, and sometimes they might not always be in the room to fight for me. And so I needed to recognize the fact that I also needed to let my work speak for itself so that in the event that people are not there, um, it's more or less evident without some random person having to be in the room or your sponsor having to be in the room to say, oh, Kike's great, is fantastic. People should naturally see it without you screaming. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, how, how, how's that possible? So I think I left, I moved to Nigeria. And my first year, my boss said the same thing to me after my first evaluation process. He said, you know, you're like a baby. You're like an open book. Everybody knows what card you're going to play. Everybody knows what move you're going to make. Um, and you sort of almost don't fight for yourself. So if, and he said to me, he said, if I wasn't in the room, you would have lost the opportunity to be promoted. But wow. you've worked so hard. Um, and you should never, ever, ever let that happen. Um, I think I ignored that, that that year. And the second year, it almost happened again. Hmm. But I was lucky. It didn't happen. I think it dawned on me then that, yes, you don't necessarily have to scream, but at some point you need to stand up for yourself. Um, and I would say that it's not always been a smooth journey. Um, there have been times where I have lost opportunities because I thought, yeah, just be quiet. Nobody really needs to know you're working hard. Mm. There are people who can see it. They'll be there. They'll speak for you. Um, so it's, if there's anything I could change, I probably would be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more outspoken, and maybe not heavily reliant on the people that I directly report to, to speak up for me. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, well, that's great, Kika. This has been an awesome conversation for sure. Um, and just before we let you go, um, we, I've got a session that I call the rapid fire section of, of, of the interview. I'm going to ask you five different questions questions um and you're just going to give me your best answer um okay. and uh so we'll start right away so what book are you currently reading um what's it called um not leaning i'm reading several that's the thing <laughs> which which one comes to mind quickly um what's it called sorry i have to check the name okay Cool. Um, what about uh, y your productivity hack? What's your favorite productivity hack or tool? Do the hardest thing first. Okay, good. What would you say is your favorite place to escape to? My study. All right. And if money or resources were not an issue, what would you do? Oh, take, a, take, a, take two years out. I'm working. Learn a language, do some calisthenics and yoga. <laughs> nice. Very exciting. Maybe that might come uh, hopefully very soon, if, if possible. Yeah, uh, in two years' time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last one, would you say that you're an early riser or a night owl and why? Oof, I'm a mix of both. Um, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of an early riser. Um, I tend to do a lot of my thinking in the very early hours of the morning. That's why I said it's a, a, a bit of both. Yeah. So between the hours of 
5 a.m. and 7 a.m. when I do best thinking. Um, and somehow between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. Hmm. So There's a bit of both. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So I'm guessing you just kind of sleep between that 2 to 5 p.m., uh, 2 to 5 yeah. a.m. <laughs> Excellent. So the book I'm reading right now is The Art of Happiness. The Art of Happiness. And that's by who? It's by Dahlia Lama. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kiki, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for making the time all the way from Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, we appreciate the conversation. We appreciate the, the lessons that uh, you, you've dropped for us today. And I'm sure there is an amazing uh, young black female that will be inspired by you as well as other individuals both male and female uh, that will find your story truly inspirational and we know that you are made to lead thank you so much for listening to this episode of made to lead if you enjoyed what you heard please subscribe on itunes google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please share with others also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at made to lead show and by visiting our website madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website madetolead.co slash get featured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead. <laughs>